You're listening to The Mix on Civ Mix, hosted by Liz Benjamin and Joe Bonia. Well, we want to welcome you back to another episode of In The Mix. We're thrilled that you are here with us, though. I have to say, I, I'm getting tired of saying, but I have to say it's under difficult circumstances after a week that felt like a year. Every after a year that's felt like an eternity. You know, it, the last <laughs> two months have felt like a year and the last week has felt like a decade. Well, before we, we came on the air, we were sort of joking around about like 2020, the dumpster fire. And you said something like, a dumpster, dump, a, a dumpster will fire will be embarrassed and, and offended to even use that term about this year. It's it's true. There, yeah. there's almost no, there's almost no terminology that one can. And I'm almost afraid to be like, well, it can't get any worse. We can only go up from here because and, every time one says that, one jinxes the whole yeah, situation. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I mean, this past week with, of course, all the demonstrations and the protests, and then unfortunately, some of the, the violence and the the rioting. Um, you know, the, which are two separate things. It, it's mm. on top of, we still have this pandemic. Let's, let's right. not forget that. Yeah. You know, well, it will be, I mean, the governor is urging people and we should just sort of as a public service announcement, remind everybody that you can, if you have been out demonstrating and I've seen a lot of people wearing masks, some people not wearing masks, which is unfortunate, but if you have been out protesting, you should get tested, but it will be instructive to know you know, there have been protests and demonstrations in which hundreds upon thousands of people across this nation and the world really have participated. So in two weeks or so, I guess we'll see. Well, I mean, look at even just a span of time since we last spoke and did the recording for this show. That was two Fridays ago, right, with Sylvia. And right. the world was an entirely different place that Friday. Yeah. And it's a real pressure cooker. People are out of work. They've been cooped up in their houses. They're mad. They're upset. They're calling for, you know, and I think you, you described it better. They're calling for change. It's not reform. They're calling for change. And change. the yeah. only thing they can do right now is get their voice out. And we're starting to see these actions play out on the local level, you know, with what's happening in Minneapolis right now, which was obviously going to happen this week. Uh, in Albany, I mean, there's a lot of things that are happening at a rapid rate that I think people did not expect to happen in their lifetime. Well, so to that end, I mean, we've got a really interesting show this evening. We do. Or for this week. But I just want to point out, you know, some I spoke to the district attorney, Albany County DA, David Soros, who happens to be a man of color. You spoke to the Albany Police Department Chief, Eric Hawkins, who's also a man of color. You are a man of color. I'm in the minority here. Yeah. Just want to point that out. Yeah. But, you know, the DA said something that I thought was really interesting and also probably will get him criticized. And he's not afraid of that, I don't think, which is, yes, change is good, but not change for change's sake. In other words, let's be measured and smart and not make decisions that we regret that we've rushed into that subsequently end us up in a place that is not where we want to be. Right. And, th and that's the delicate, difficult thing about formulating policy is that these things can't be done um, just because, you know, you want to be an activist using 280 characters. There needs to be the time and the thought to figure out, well, what yeah, is going to replace 
this. But that's not gonna that's not gonna fly right with angry people in the street. And, and it never that's has. That's not gonna fly when we're so close to primary day. And that's not going to fly when elected officials are looking around and saying, wow, if thousands of people are willing to come out in the street, will these thousands of people be willing to vote? Because if they do, then my ass is in trouble. Well, that's the big (laughs) question. So what will happen, obviously, this first week for the most local of local elections, library and school uh, votes. But then we have a, a primary on June 23rd. So if we start seeing and this is also because of the pandemic we have a, a wide majority of people will be voting by absentee. So, yeah. and on top of early voting. So we still have people doing it. So if people actually want to begin to see these changes, register the vote and then vote. Yeah. That, that is the easiest thing you can do. But it's not sexy, you know. It's never it's going not, to be. It's not. And it's not to encourage people who want to blow up the system to engage in change from inside the system out is a difficult pretzel of logic. Yeah, it is. So we are gonna continue having this conversation, I'm sure for a number of weeks, we've got so many interesting people who are sort of coming out of the woodwork and expressing a desire to talk to us, which is really gratifying. And I just wanna give a shout out to people who are listening, who have reached out to me and reached out to you, Joe, and said that they enjoy this program and what we're doing, this podcast, which is great. And we're gonna keep doing it. But I also wanna get to the gentleman that we spoke with. But before we do, (laughs) <laughs> this is actually a momentous weekend. I know. I which know. you kind of buried the lead here. I because know. Because just one year ago, we launched Civmix. And yeah. we launched it just the website and, of course, the social media. And then 11 weeks ago, we began this podcast. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, at some point, we'll throw ourselves a party. And hopefully people will come. And they're all invited to come. And they're all invited whenever we have our non-Zoom. It's not going to be by Zoom, and it's not going to be online because I can't stand it anymore. I, I can't Actually, do a Zoom part. I, I don't like the I, Zoom happy hours. I'm sorry. I just I can't. I do will, it. Well, look, I was thinking the other day. I was like, you know what? I feel like it's time for me to come into the studio and for you, you gotta and to you gotta out. come here because you know Zoom's all cool and all, but you know the in person no, no, no. seeing Next you across time a desk. We're we're going to be together next yeah, time. Yeah. I've had enough. We're ready. This, the studio is ready for you. That's good. And so we will talk a little bit more about this milestone. I just want to thank people for sticking with us the way that they have and for helping us get the word out. And I mean, uh, from, you know, of course, you know, liking us on social media to subscribing to Rise and Shine, which Liz d- diligently does sometime between the hours of midnight and 4 a.m. <laughs> you know, these... All of it together has been a a fun trip this past year. Yeah, and more to come. So let's get to it. Mr. District Attorney, thank you so much for being with us. It's a pleasure to have you here in the mix. Thank you for having us. Uh, It's a very difficult time, obviously. I think we have a lot of ground to cover, so I'm going to get right into it. I have seen... Um, You've been doing a lot of talking. Obviously, people are very interested in hearing what you have to say. You sort of check a lot of interesting and opposing boxes. You are a man of color and you're also in law enforcement. And 
I guess your sort of high level view first of what we are seeing just say over the last 24 to 48 hours. Well, you know, so there's, there's the good, the bad and the ugly. Um, I tell you for me, I, I love seeing people, um, uh, come together. Um, uh, people who are uh, voicing concern for others. So in so many ways, um, Mr. Floyd's death is bringing this country together. But in, but in so many ways, it's also showing us uh, where all the, the bandages are, you know. And so my hope uh, is that we continue to freely express our thoughts my my hope is that those thoughts and expressions somehow manifest themselves into policy and we don't waste this opportunity or wait for the next tragedy before we pick up the conversation again. And my hope is that we can continue to do this safely uh, and peacefully because in this instance, we're also um, experiencing, you know, the novel coronavirus. Right. As as well as national outrage, and so how do we achieve, you know, all of those collective collective things and do so safely? You know, I do. There's been a lot of speculation. This this one is one that you probably won't have expected in terms of uh, questions that you might have prepared for. But you know, we you've had a country in lockdown, you have widespread unemployment, and then on top of that, you have yet another instance of police brutality. Had we not been where we were in those first two, do you think we would have seen the response that we're seeing to the third? So let, let's just let's just keep everything real. I mean, we're we're on the mix where I believe your your discussions here are, are very truthful, honest, and free flowing. So if you're talking to a person of color and you're talking about um, uh, unemployment. You're talking about living under dire circumstances, and you're talking about police brutality. Um, that just means that it's Sunday, right? <laughs> um, those th th there are people laboring with those conditions every single day. The difference is um, we now have an entire country laboring under those conditions, and um, you know what Rodney King and the video did for our nation. Um, back then is what, you know, George Floyd's death and, you know, th that video trending day after day, hour after hour is, is done to the psyche of the country. Yeah. But, it, but so interestingly, you say then, you know, and then there's also been a lot of talk about, oh, it's the sixties all over again. You're seeing those sort of old school black and white photos of the rage of that era. And then there were policy changes that occurred out of that era, some of them good, some of them bad. Some of the policy changes that we're speaking of today, I, I, I mean, we're, we're seeing just now a headline that suggests that Minneapolis is gonna defund its police department. Is that the right answer? That is, that is the worst possible answer. You know, let, let's just keep, again, I believe that, that we are capable, right? of solving complex problems. Um, but I think that we're also living in what we're like the microwave generation where we don't want food cooking for, you know, 45 minutes to, to two hours. 
Uh, we want everything, you know, two minutes or less. The reality is, is that the smartest policies that we can develop now are policies that we actually come together and, and think through and implement. Um, there's not going to be a senator or an assembly person from downstate New York or from any other correction that's uh, a community that is heading to Albany with solutions in hand. Mm. Um, what we have to deal with here is a it, are complex issues. Now, we have to revisit the issue of of of, um, uh, of law enforcement, right? Um, and develop standards that are national standards, not standards that one community adopts and another and, and the second community doesn't. Well, but wait, you just to just to before I lose this thought though, when you said when you ask a person of color, you speak of you know high unemployment high negativity in terms of public outcomes when we talk about health, which, you know, we know that people are paying a disproportionate price financially and also with their lives physically in the coronavirus pandemic, you say, well, that's like Sunday. And when people say they want to defund the police department, they want to take that money and reinvest it. The mayor of New York City says, I'm going to cut the New York City Police Department, and I'm going to take that money, and I'm going to invest it in youth programs and mental health, and maybe who knows what else, he didn't use a specific dollar amount, but education and domestic violence prevention, and all these things that arguably have been plaguing inner city communities of color, low-income communities for decades. That's where the violence is the root of the violence, is it not? That's true, except what is the mayor going to do for those people who are the biggest consumers of public safety resources, the very communities that he's looking to, to save by repurposing those dollars? I, I've got a child that was shot sitting on his bed uh, with an iPad going to sleep and a bullet, 20 of which were fired, but one of those bullets happened to hit his home and hit him. The people, you know, we talk about, um, the, the, you know, incarceration rates, right? It's like, okay, well, you can read a stat. Thank you for doing that. You can read a stat. But what you don't realize is that we don't keep stats for victimization. The, the people who are the most victimized by the most violent offenses happen to be people of color, okay? Those are the victims that I serve in the district attorney's office. And so... Yes, police brutality is an issue we need to be concerned with. It's an issue that we have to address. But we can't take drastic actions to address police brutality, and at the same time, you deprive the law enforcement and public safety services to the very community that you're trying to save. As a, as a man of color, a law enforcement official, and also a man of color, are you offended when people say all lives matter? <laughs> okay, so... Yes and no, but but here but here is here is the reason why here's the reason why right. Black Lives Matter is so specific to the relationship between people of color and law enforcement, right? I'm not going to get into you know the history, but you know in order to do what I would say a, a crib sheet. It's it's uh, the Dred Scott decision in 1857 yeah. that rendered. Uh, people of color property, right, with no uh, access to the courts. That was a Supreme Court, you know, decision. It's Plessy versus Ferguson that said separate but equal, that brought about Jim Crow. 
And then it's Brown v. Board that looked to take that away. Now, I'm the youngest of five children. So how is it that I'm tethered? You know, what, what are the, the soft tissue connections between me and, and, and the Dred Scott decision? I'm the youngest of five. I'm 50 now. I was born in 1969, which means that all of my siblings, had we been born in the United States and not in West Africa, my sisters would have to go to a different school, right? So there's still connections today to people like me with all of those, with all of those issues. At the forefront of all of those people who were enforcing the laws, right? Because these were laws on our books, constitutional. This is Supreme Court decisions and laws. It was always a person in a badge enforcing those laws, right? So culturally, as a person of color, you grow up looking at a badge and a person of a badge, not as a person who is a savior, but that's the person that's removing you from the school because you know it's a segregated school. That, that's that the person that's moving you from account. So many years. How? What policy is going to write that? Because it's, we're talking about all sorts of like you know I touched on defunding the police, but you mentioned that the the, uh, the state lawmakers are coming back next week, and top of mind for them is this law that people may or may not know in the shorthand of 50A, which is the civil um, service law that prevents, basically prevents police- Access to- to You can't foil it. You can't foil the the jacket, right? Correct. And and the governor now is on board and everybody's on board and they think it's a great idea and, and that you should have information, public information should be made and also, the person who might be hiring an individual, because we know all of these stories that you know we've heard anecdotally, and some of them then subsequently turn out to be tragic, of an individual who is quietly told to leave a department because he or she has had some sort of problem that was founded, and another department hires that individual not knowing, because they can't access the information, what that person did, and then they inherit a problem without knowing about it, right? That's part of what we're talking about here. And there is an opportunity for us to, right now is the opportunity for us to address it. And and we have enough reasonable people, intelligent people, to be able to, to get around a table and to craft a policy that will overcome that. Now, just before I get on to the 50A issue, I just want to go back and say that when we say Black Lives Matter, right, we're talking about the history, the relationship, and this is specifically happening to just people of color, right? That, that's the distinction between when someone says Black Lives Matter and then someone says All Lives Matter. To those people who understand this, they see that the person who's saying All Lives Matter, they're just dismissing you know, what culturally we understand as, as a very painful experience and one that haunts us every day, even when we see lights behind us. Um, and, and being pulled over for routine traffic stops. So when someone, when someone retorts with all lives matter, it's really being dismissive towards that experience. But I also say for those of us who are, who are knowledgeable people and people of color, when you hear a friend or someone say that, you know, we have the opportunity to check that and to educate them there. Now, now going back to the issue of 58 and the things that are coming out of, of the second floor in the governor's office, let me just, you know, ask this governor to demonstrate leadership and, and not be opportunistic here, politically opportunistic, or engage in political expediency by by saying something, but then, you know, having 
having no public meetings, having no opportunities for people to provide testimony and just wham, bam, political score, you know, it's a three point from half court. So you're saying you would prefer to see the legislature wait, not necessarily to act on whatever piece of legislation they may or may not move on. I mean, there's also reforms that have been proposed at the federal level to your comment regarding like national policies instead of a state by state patchwork, which leaves some states more progressive than others. Certainly we've seen that. Yeah, we, we have to well. do something, you know, we, if you look at gun legislation, the reason why it's an utter fail, uh, failure in our country is because it's a patchwork. So right. red states, you know, red states are freer to do th things, more liberal in their policies. Blue states are more conservative with respect to, to, to gun policy. Um, that, that can't be the way that we engage and deal with um, law enforcement in the well, United States. The, because the what happens is, what happens is, is that you could be a, a you could be in a progressive state doing all of the right things. But then when you see something happening in Tennessee or in this instance in Minneapolis, mm. right, what that does is it touches every single community. And so we have to handle this at a federal level, create federal standards. We have to professionalize the institution. Right. So it's attracting the best and the brightest to the to that institution. We have to open the institution so we're seeing more men, more women, more LGBT, uh, LGBTQ. We, we have to just open up the profession and embrace diversity. And when we have that kind of diversity, you'll start to see, you know, processes change and relationships change. Do you worry, though? I mean, this, this is such a upheaval of a year where everything is really, I mean, unpredictable to the nth degree. And you are facing a primary, if I'm yes. not mistaken. And Correct. so, you know, every opportunity for your opponent to sort of poke at you and say, you're not progressive enough, which is ironic because if I remember correctly, I covered your original race. That's how old I am. And you ran on the Working Families Party line as a progressive poster child and, you know, took on an individual who had been your boss and said he wasn't progressive enough. It's like history repeating itself to some degree. Well, not, except, every, not all it, of those things fall. Yeah, except that it's really not. And the reality here, what this beef is truly about, it's about bail reform. It's about yeah. the Working Families Party and Citizen Action continuing to support a piece of legislation passed in 2019 that is harmful to public safety. I, I, I my political birth, <laughs> you know, occurred as a result of of taking on terrible policy that had disproportionate impacts on people of color. I have a record, a real record, that's actually uh, demonstrable. Um, I don't have to create fiction about my record where I've reduced our local population in, in our county jail to the point where they've renamed the jail to a rehabilitative support services, okay? So that happens when you're doing a diversion that happens when you're implementing uh, restorative justice. It's what happens when you're also qualifying people who you believe to be very dangerous people. And those are the people that you're using incarceration uh, for. So I, I have my record of, of, of all of that. But I'll tell you this, I can't kowtow to the political whims of the moment and betray, you know, everything that I'm about. I, I can't just say something like, oh, okay, let's just 
have the legislators come back and we'll wipe it, we'll wipe this away with this policy and that'll take care of 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 everything. We, we've seen this before. We've seen the legislature be reactive and quickly attempt to to cure a problem only to see other problems come from them. And I'm not suggesting to you that that this issue of 50A isn't an important issue. It is. We ought to look at it. We ought to put together a policy that addresses that right now. So before um, before we run out of time mm-hmm. though, I just want I just want to also note regarding bail reform, you know, you and I should say writ large the district attorneys were at odds with the governor regarding um, what looters should be charged with, if I remember correctly. And could you I mean Again, the governor, look, the governor is saying a lot of different things. Yeah. He is, of course, sort of flying blind like the rest of us. No one ever has been a governor in the middle of a pandemic before. Now, of course, all 50 state governors are forcing to, as well as the president and everybody else. But so, you know, I guess we can give him some leeway there. But but in this instance, you know, it seems like he he was all for bail reform, and now he's suggesting that you guys throw the book at looters because it's so egregious. Look, uh, far be it from me, you know, I've watched our governor perform under the most uh, um, <laughs> pressure-filled situations, and I've had great admiration, you know, for his leadership under COVID and what he's been able to do. He and I could not have been in greater disagreement over the reforms that were passed because they were passed haphazardly. And, and the outcomes of those reforms are exactly what we warned them about. 85% of what they passed was fantastic, but it was overshadowed by the 15% of the problems that we saw where a woman is attacking people of Jewish faith and being arrested and getting out and attacking another person of Jewish faith. Well, those were the consequences of a poorly drafted piece of legislation that allowed for those offenses um, to not have any bail set. It's the same thing right now with with people who are using bricks, throwing them through um, glass windows and looting um, and robbing and burglarizing those places. Burglary, as you know, under the 2019 statute, was one of those offenses where you can't hold someone on bail. Right. So my colleagues all throughout the state are, are helpless because you took, you, they took away judicial discretion. So even judges can't, can exercise the, the discretion and prevent those individuals from going out and continuing, continuing to harm. Now they did make some corrections in this past session, but, but those don't take effect until July 1st of this year. Right? So Again, that's what I don't want to happen here as we take on this issue of, of, of police brutality. I don't want to see poorly drafted legislation that was done for purposes of expediency and for the purposes of trying to, to quell a situation only to find that it's either going to be unconstitutional or you know there are going to be other problems because the devils are always in the details. Well, I think what's going to happen is if history is any guide, we're going to see some significant movement towards changes. I, I'm loath to call everything reform because not everybody's going to agree with that adjective. Yep. So, so when it, the changes are made, we will revisit with you because I think we're running out of time, though. I could keep you for quite some time. Yep. I, I just want to say one last thing and just, to, just as a friendly reminder to folks, and I apologize, but... So having an opinion living in the town of Bethlehem about criminal justice reform 
is a lot different than having an opinion and living on Second Street in Arbor Hill, because those are the people that are experiencing the most violence. They're experiencing the most, you know, I can't even describe the things that are being seen here. So if you're going to weigh in on public safety policy, you should do so with the consideration of how other people are experiencing safety a little bit differently than you are. Well said, Mr. DA. I thank you very much for your time, sir, as always. Have a great day, and I really appreciate this opportunity to engage. Stay safe. You too. Thank you. Are you looking to reach a diverse audience? Advertise with CivMix today. Visit CivMix.com to learn more. Are you ready to rise and shine? Read up on the latest news and happenings taking place in your community each weekday morning on CivMix.com. Sign up to receive Rise and Shine in your inbox. CivMix, it's where it's at. Catch new episodes of The Mix each week exclusively on CivMix.com. Chief Eric Hawkins is the police chief for the Albany Police Department. Chief, how are you? Yeah, I'm doing well, thank you. So let's, before we get into, of course, everything that's going on right now, you know, from, you know, the protests to some of the proposed legislation, let's talk a little bit more about you. Uh, You just came to Albany just under two years ago. Yes. Yes. And so, and before that, obviously you were in Southfield, Michigan. You had rose from a cadet all the way to the police chief and I guess, are there similarities? I mean, I, I, from looking, doing my own research, you know, the difference between, obviously the biggest difference between Albany and Southfield is that whereas a third of the city of Albany is African-American, more than 70% of Southfield is African-American. Am I correct? Uh, yes, that's correct. And so what were your experiences, like, I, I guess, going from being a cadet to, you know, rising to police chief? Because I think that's one of the things that's kind of important as part of we, as we get through this conversation right now. Yeah, so when I started in 1990 and I was promoted to a, the police officer position in 1991, I came in right at the time of the Rodney King incident. Right. So I was quickly introduced as a rookie cop to you know a, a lot of the racial undertones that we that have historically been in law enforcement, particularly between law enforcement and the African American community. And so it was a quite an introduction back then and. Um, that's, and I saw throughout my career, you know, similar things as well as, uh, as I rose through the ranks. But, you know, it's, it's been an interesting ride. You know, it's, you know, as an African-American uh, person in law enforcement, it's, uh, it's always, it was an adjustment at the very beginning. And, and it's something that throughout my career, I've had to make adjustments. It's been a, been a good ride. I've seen a lot of changes, a lot of reforms, and but I understand that right now there's a movement for even more. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, for, for me of Puerto Rican descent, my grandfather was part of NYPD, you know, from the fifties to the seventies. And so for me personally, you know, I've always viewed the, the, a police officer as a partner, as a friend in that way, because just because of my own family's history. And I think that's where, um, a lot of people of color do not have that same sort of familiarity and they don't have that same uh, level of comfortability, really, uh, with law enforcement in that way. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of distrust. You know, historically, we've seen that and a lot of it is justified. And the memory of the 
the oppression of the oppressive atmosphere in law enforcement with, with respect to the African-American community has lingered for decades. And it's something that we're dealing with right now, you know, as a young person of color. Yeah, I, I can remember the stories from my parents and my uncles and friends about uh, how to, to avoid the police. The police aren't your friends. You know, you know they'll, they'll do things to, uh, to, to plant evidence, all, all these different sorts of things. And so it becomes the reality. It's just something that you accept as you grow up. Uh, you know, just like you, you accept that, you know, a, a firefighter is a person that's going to come help you to put out fires or, you know, it, you know the banker is going to help you, you know, you, uh, protect your money. You know, all those different perceptions are, are there. And so for many in the African-American community, they see this law enforcement institution as one that was designed to oppress uh, people that look like them. And so it's something that is a constant battle. And I knew that, you know, as a young person that I could have an impact and I wanted to get involved to see if I could help bridge some, build some bridges. So now in your role as chief and of this department, what have been things that you have done or at least, you know, your vision for how to perhaps diversify the department or what initiatives are you undertaking right now? Right now, uh, diversification of the department is something that's of, of high importance. You know, I'll be creating a program pretty uh, within the next couple of months that will attract young men and women from the Albany community and with the hopes that we'll attract many minorities and women into the police department. You know, we're doing some things in terms of incre increasing our community policing engagements and outreach. I supported every single community policing program that we've had in the city prior to me being here and we've been creating more. And just offering perspective when I get a chance about the experience of and perspective of many African Americans as it pertains to the police department and law enforcement in general. You know, we've and, and I you know I've talked to many law enforcement executives of, of color about this. And you know, many of us feel that we're just kind of stuck in the middle. You know, we we have these personal experiences. And we have this personal perspective about law enforcement, but we're leading these organizations within this, this industry itself. And we're trying to make a difference. We're trying to bring, you know, and build and, and help communities work with the police department to kind of have some mutual understanding. And it's tough. And it's a, it's a tough job. We, and, and what's so frustrating about it is that I see progress, you know, in my 30 from 1990 up to now, there's been a tremendous amount of progress in terms of engagement with the African-American community and, and policies and practices and engagement and all of those things, but it's perceived as not being enough and not being fast enough. And it just, it, and so it, it just makes it a, a little frustrating for us that are right in, in the trenches trying to initiate change. So that's a good segue as we talk about, you know, the the demonstrations, the protests that have been happening all across the country and if, uh, particularly here in the capital region where there were, have been demonstrations almost every other day in every locality, including here in Albany. Troy saw more than 11,000 uh, demonstrators. And, you know, I want to know what, you, what your thoughts are at first on the protests. Uh, and secondly, you know, as it relates to, you know, how do we move forward? Because I think the 
part of the, the, the challenge right now is it's not just, I think it's for me, and this is my, my personal perspective here, it's, it was a pressure cooker situation where folks were angry, they were upset over obviously seeing um, an African-American man you know, killed um, on camera. But then second, you have the coronavirus, you have people out of work, um, and I think that really is, is, of course, fueling and putting gasoline to this fire that I think is embered a little bit too long in this country's history. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that this shows that there is a tremendous amount of anger and frustration. Uh, and, and you're not just seeing it within the African-American community. You're seeing it. I mean, this, there are very diverse crowds out that are protesting in, across the country. And so people are concerned and people uh, feel that there is not enough being done in terms of reforming police departments, making sure, make, uh, in, in ensuring that police departments are responding to communities in ways that these communities want to be served. We're saying that there's, and we're hearing it loud and clear. And so I, so for me as chief, uh, you know, I am letting my, letting the officers and, and all of the, the people in the, in, in the police department know that, you know, this is not an indictment necessarily on us personally, but it just means that people are very, very upset about the, the tone of the industry itself. And so, in, of which we are part of. And so we've got to work within that and we've got to understand that, but also we've got to get this message out to some of the people who are justifiably upset about things that have happened just recently and historically, that there are some very, very good people who are working hard to, 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 uh, for progress, to help us to get to where we need to be in terms of engagement and building bridges with those. And it's, it's, it's a tough thing. It's, it's tough because there are no easy, easy answers. Right. Uh, pay, uh, people are upset about the pace. And you have people within the industry which are saying, you know, hey, we're working hard, we're getting there, we've, we're making incremental steps, and so we've got to come to some understanding about how to get to where we need to be. I think I think everyone understands we need to get there. It's just a matter of how do we get there together. Right, and you know, part of that discussion about how do we get there, it you know, leads up to this upcoming week where the legislature will be reconvening. Um, there's a focus on police reform with the governor's so-called say their name reform agenda, which uh, looks to, of course, you know, remove and reform 50A, uh, banning chokeholds, prohibiting race-based 911 reports and making them a crime, and designating the attorney general as an independent prosecutor for matters relating to the death of unarmed civilians caused by law enforcement. What is your, uh, your take and opinion on this uh, legislative package? I think the packages I've seen, and I haven't really taking a deep dive into it, but it appears reasonable, some of the proposals that are seen in there. And, I, and, and moreover, I think that people within the law enforcement industry understand that reforms are coming. And it, it's just a matter of making sure that we have a seat at the table and some input when they eventually uh, occur. But, but I, don't, I don't think you get any argument from those within the industry that, that uh, some change is necessary, some change is coming. And, and, and also, a lot of the reforms and proposals that we see out there are already in place in many departments, including in the Albany Police Department. So you are in, so basically, if the legislature were to pass this governor would sign it, your department would be ready to implement these changes that it's calling for and be compliant with us. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. 
I think because one of the things I heard earlier from the the sheriff of Washington County on WMC earlier was, and again, I think there's, of course, it's like with any issue, there's going to be a diverse set of opinions and voices on any particular topic. And one of the the criticisms that he brought up was that law enforcement was not consulted uh, for this legislation. Uh, do you share that that criticism, or do you think it's? I mean, as you just said, I mean, these reforms have been long overdue. I think that there probably could have been more involvement with law enforcement, but we've we've been sounding off in the law enforcement uh, industry for a while about what our opinions were about 50A and some of these other reforms. So I, I, I'm confident that the legislators understood what the position was and is in law enforcement regarding some of these reforms, but I think we get it. We, we understand that a lot of these reforms will be coming. And it's just like in back in the mid nineties when there was a series of reforms in terms of community policing and, and, and problem-oriented policing and how we changed how we operated back in the mid nineties. You know, we're seeing right now, this it just in our, right before our eyes, we're seeing change. And, and it's just incumbent upon us to understand that this change is coming and to figure out how we can best incorporate this change into our overall strategy so that we can keep our people safe, keep the community safe, and move forward to building some, some more healthy relations between law enforcement and members of the minority community. We're nearly out of time, but I want to ask you, one, going back to more, you know, you personally, and, and this is more of a question about um, how we train, you know, our police officers and, and what sort of additional education. So you are also an attorney and a police officer at the same time. Yes. Yes. I do have a law degree. And yes. you also have an MPA. So is, I guess the question I have for you here and we'll, and this is how we'll wrap up is do, do you think it's important for law enforcement to further education? So therefore they know more about the law. And do you think that makes folks a, a basically does that make them a better police officer in the long run for their community? I think formal academia is, is productive, is beneficial to law enforcement officers because it gives us, uh, more of an opportunity to uh, to exchange ideas with others that are from outside the industry. You know, a lot of times, you know, we, we you know we're training. We're it's all about you know policies and procedures and you know how to, how to take uh, effect arrests and all these other sorts of things. But the exchange of ideas and the appreciation for different perspectives is something that you get from formal academia. You know, how do how, how do you defend a position? A philosophical position that you have with someone who may think totally opposite, and then come into a, uh, a you know to a um, to, to some sort of compromise. You know, one of the things that that I took away, one of my big takeaways from law school was that uh, reasonable minds can differ. Yes, one of my law school professors would always tell us, and whether we would have these these real these debates about whatever it may be, due process or the commerce clause or whatever it may be. And it get real fiery and emotional. And the professor would listen to it all. And then he would kind of slow things down and say, uh, just remember students, reasonable minds can differ. And, and it would kind of it would bring us back. And so I think that that's what we need now more than ever is an understanding that you can, we can see this whole racial issue and the, the, the relationship between law enforcement and, and the African-American community. And we can see it totally different but we've got to understand that 
reasonable minds can differ. How can we now talk about this and come to some sort of mutual understanding that would be beneficial for the whole? And, uh, and I'm optimistic as we move forward. I think this, we're gonna have more discussions as we move forward. And, uh, and I look forward to being, being a part of that. Chief Eric Hawkins, I appreciate your time and I appreciate all the hard work you were doing to make Albany a, a better and safer place. All right, well, thank you so much. Thank you. Catch new episodes of The Mix each week exclusively on civmix.com.